Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. Today, your host is Todd Benton, and I'm your co-host, Helen Hillix. And today's show, a new breed of impact investors are giving boardrooms a conscience. A conversation with Natasha Lamb from Arjuna Capital. Do men and women working in the same job with the same level of education and experience make the same amount of money? All too often, the answer is no. Today, we'll speak with Natasha Lamb, a woman who is working to change that, as well as a host of other issues, both social and environmental. Her company's engagements with Apple, Intel, Amazon, Expedia, and eBay have led all of them to commit to gender pay equity today. And her 2014 landmark negotiation with ExxonMobil led to the company's first public report on global warming and carbon asset risk. What led Natasha to this line of work? How does she get these companies to make these kinds of changes? What's next? And what can we learn from her and her approach? Join us. Todd? Well, welcome, everyone. Really excited to have Natasha here with us today. And uh, welcome, Natasha Lamb. Thank you so much, Todd and Helen. I appreciate uh, the interest in this issue. Yeah, we're, we're very interested in it. And, um, you know, I don't know how much you, I thought I would just start with the, the three principles of the inner revolution, since this is inner revolutionary radio, and they are oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And just briefly, oneness meaning we're all connected. We all share the same planet. We're all one. I think that one's pretty straightforward. Accountability, I mean, you're, you're no stranger to that one, holding these companies accountable. Um, and, you know, all of us being accountable for our actions, then our impact on each other and on ourselves as well. So um, I'm really interested in that part of the conversation because it impacts people that are, you know, trashing the planet. It impacts them because they, they at some level, know that what they're doing. Uh, the third is mutual support. So that idea is that we support the whole and the whole supports us. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that. So with that as a background and uh, backdrop to our conversation, I, I wanted to start with how did you get started in this field of impact investing? And, you know, anything you want to share about your upbringing, what led you to kind of having a, a conscience, a social conscience? And um, I'd be interested in hear all that. <laughs> well, that's, I know that's, that's a long, that's, that's a big, <laughs> a big area, but absolutely. I can go, I can go back to, I can go back to my childhood. <laughs> I wanted to be uh, an author uh, and a doctor, an author so that I would have a voice and a doctor so I could help people. <laughs> so I think, I think, you know, combining those two things uh, has always been really important to me. And, uh, you know, I've been working in sustainable investing now for just over a decade, about 12 or 13 years. And, uh, you know, the thing that really drew me to it was this idea that, you know, taking care of the environment, social justice, uh, and, you know, economic success and financial return, that those weren't mutually exclusive ideas, uh, that in fact, they're mutually reinforcing. And, and I think that actually connects really well with, you know, one of the principles that you stated of mutual support. Uh, you know, we live on a finite planet and we all um, 
both, you know, need to get along. We're all connected. Uh, we're all sharing these resources. And at the same time, we're facing really big challenges, uh, you know, from the fact that we're, that we're moving, you know, toward, uh, you know, from seven to nine billion people, um, that there, there's only so much resource uh, that we can share. There's, you know, six inches of soil across the globe that provides all of our food. And if we don't take care of that, um, we're all in trouble. Uh, there's the fact that uh, global warming is such a risk to, um, to you know, our livelihoods, our uh, habitat, our economy. I mean, look at the damage that's being done by, um, or that has been done and continues to be done by Hurricane Harvey. Uh, and, you know, and then economic uh, disparities between populations and the divisions that that, cause, that causes when, uh, you know, you have the few that have and the many that have not. And even in the, in the U.S., you see that division by, you know, what's happened through globalization and the manufacturing sector and just, you know, the bottom of the economy being pulled out. Uh, you know, think about, um, you know, during the financial crisis, Occupy Wall Street and, you know, this this fervor uh, that the 1% is benefiting and the 99% uh, just aren't succeeding in the same way. Um, so that's sort of a, a long way of saying uh, we have a lot of challenges and there's opportunities to solve them in a way where people are being taken care of, they're thriving, our environment is thriving, uh, and we're all moving forward um, in a unified, uh, you know, with a, with a unified agenda, as, you know, as, as much as one can have that. You know, I love what you're saying, Nakasha, and I'm a marriage and family therapist, a counselor by trade. And it's so heartwarming to hear someone who is so embedded in the investment in the economic plane talking about these social and environmental and basically spiritual issues, because that's really what you're talking about, too, in terms of seeing everyone in, in terms of oneness. And, and there's, a, there's a caring that is manifest in what you're talking about there is a caring that i think so many people are not feeling nowadays just as you were saying you know watching the bottom fall out of the economy and the and the many who do not have and it's just wonderful to hear that social conscience integrated into the economic world and at the same time it's so it's so ironic that people are waking up to the reality that it's only when we do so that we will survive, really. It's like, how long are we going to believe that we can be polluting the streams that we drink out of with no impact, and so on and so on and so on. And I just love that your company is making this so obvious. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's no doubt um, that we live on this one finite planet and that if we're if we're not thinking about how the systems connect um, and how all of those systems loops, loops work, uh, that we're just, we're completely missing the point. Um, and, you know, I think there's this idea, uh, you know, with the industrial revolution and, you know, just sort of moving through the 20th century of, you know, 
the the production model, economic production, the machine, industrialization, that that was somehow separate from our lives, that work and life were separate. Uh, whereas, you know, for so long through time, you had a much more integrated approach, right? You had farming and hunting and gathering and communities that were low, you know, these local living economies, not that they even had a choice. You know, now we think about uh, economies, you know, towns and cities uh, trying to, to reinvigorate uh, their local economies. But it used to be that that was just the way it is. Uh, and everybody was connected to their food and what they grew and the environment and nature. And with the Industrial Revolution, those things became disparate and separate and siloed. Uh, and a lot was lost in that. Um, and when you think, of, I, I, I actually have loved this. I was on a panel with this wonderful woman uh, at Harvard and she said uh, that as a society, we value production and we don't value reproduction. <laughs> and I think that that, is, that really shows the short-termism versus the long-term and what's important. Um, of course, we need production. Of course, we need a an economy that's going to produce, that you know, people have the goods and services that they need, that they're able to thrive. Uh, but if you take a bit of a longer view and think about, okay, well, you know, this is the, here's you know one generation or one quarter or one business cycle. What happens in the next business cycle, the next quarter, uh, the next generation? And I, you know, I think the the Native Americans with the looking out seven generations and thinking about how their actions impacted the next seven generations. I mean, that's, that's how we should be thinking. Um, and, you know, many of us have the luxury to do that and look out those generations. But if you're in a crisis situation, um, you know, and, you know, you don't have, you can't make ends meet, then of course you're going to be thinking short term. And that's why we need to be thinking as a whole system so that, so that there aren't people in crisis and that we're thinking about the economy as a whole and how everyone's success moves us all forward um, successfully. It's I so, totally agree with you. <laughs> it is so fascinating hearing you talk and using some of the exact same words that our founder in the innerrevolution.org uses about that reproduction is what we all should be fighting for and what our economy should be based on is reproduction and not just reproduction in the sense, and I know you're not using it that way either, uh, of, of having babies, but reproducing the worker every day. You know, what, does it, what, what does it take to reproduce a worker in terms of his own work every day? Somebody's got to be supporting his health care somebody's got to be thinking about the environment that he lives in so that the food has, has nourishment in it so that he still has the strength to work. So, I mean, it's, it's very interesting to hear you talking about it. And, and I'm or thinking, she. <clears throat> I noticed you said uh, he in all exactly. those situations. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. And that's part <laughs> of the brainwashing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's well, part of the brainwashing. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, when I said reproduction, I actually did mean, you know, re the reproduction of our, of our species. And when you think about that, uh, and, you know, kind of, you know, next generation and all these things, I mean, we are designed at our core to change and to evolve. Um, and, you know, that's really, that's really important. And we, you know, each, 
each generation learns from the generation before it um, and evolves, you know, further. Now, if you if you don't pay attention to to the mistakes that were made, you know, previous, and you know, then you get into this loop of repeating history, um, which you know we're in, we're in a little bit of right now. Yeah. I really appreciate the the mission of Arjuna Capital, though, and it is interesting to me to think about the idea of people with extreme wealth who are investing in companies in our country and wanting, <clears throat> excuse me, to finally have that kind of foresight to think about, you know, and it's not it's not only self serving, but it is, but it is also self serving because we are all one. You know, finally, people with wealth are waking up to the reality that if they want their money or their foundation or whatever to exist in perpetuity, that they're going to have to think that way about what is a sustainable investment that isn't going to just wear out the earth we live on, but that can actually nurture us. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, when you when you think about um, the new model of companies uh, and how kind of the most progressive companies are moving forward, uh, you know, take Unilever, for example, there, uh, I was just sent uh, a, a forward of the Bloomberg Business Week uh, article on Unilever for that's coming out this weekend. And, um, you know, Paul Pullman, who's the CEO of that company, has really tried to transform how that company operates uh, in order to create not only more sustainable products, but have products that are accessible to, um, you know, not just the the wealthy billionaires, but the billions around the world. Um, And, you know, Unilever may be a leader in that area, but they're not alone. I think um, you know, the leading companies in this country and around the globe are putting these issues, uh, you know, at the top of the agenda. And they're doing that not only because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, we all, we sometimes we dismiss that because, um, you know, that's sort of soft, right? There's these, these soft issues and then these the hard economic issues. Right, right. And, um, but it's important. It's important to, you know, align, you know, what you what you think, what you say, and what you do, uh, and have those in harmony. I think, you know, the Buddha said that's the, the key to happiness. Uh, so that's, that's an important thing that we shouldn't dismiss. Um, but it's also in the company's enlightened self-interest to take these issues into account, um, you know, because, and so, you know, there's really a business case to do so. Uh, when you think about, um, in the case of Unilever, the billions they can serve, well, that's a market for them. You know, it's, impor- it's important to recognize that, but they also want to serve that market in a sustainable way that works for everyone. And if they don't, it's not going to work for everyone. It's not going to work for them. Um, you know, when you think about even, you know, a company wanting to be more environmentally conscious uh, and reduce their energy use and their carbon output, they're going to save money doing that. Uh, if you think about ExxonMobil, who is facing, I think, you know, the, the biggest existential threat to uh, their business model uh, that they've ever faced this century, which is that we can't, you know, burn all of the oil that we already have. Um, 
you know, they need to be they need to be doing the analysis. They need to be transparent about that issue with investors, because if they're not, it's not only the company that's going to get caught flat footed. It's, you know, it's it's the investors, it's the employee, it's, um, you know, the 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 environment, obviously. Uh, so all of the all of these issues, whether they're environmental or social, uh, are are really important business issues. And, you know, at the top of the hour, you uh, you brought up the work we've done on gender pay equity. And, you know, one of the reasons um, that we brought that to, you know, first Silicon Valley and now Wall Street is that we saw that there was a business case for change and that if you could remove, you know, one of the structural barriers keeping women from moving up the corporate ladder and into positions of leadership, that being, you know, the gender pay gap and equal pay for equal work. If you did that, you would have more women in leadership, more diverse teams, and there is a body of research now that shows that more diverse teams lead to better decision-making and better financial outcomes, whether that's uh, profit margins or stock price performance or return on equity. Um, so, you know, there's there's reasons uh, for companies to act not only because it's the right thing to do, but uh, because it's uh, in their in their you know self interest. Do you think, Natasha, that there are actually companies that don't get this still, or are they secretively? urgently behind the scenes trying to find ways to fix the mess that they're in. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely companies that, that, that don't get this. Um, And, you know, when we're working with companies, we're always looking uh, to uh, inspire them to, to, uh, you know, incorporate more sustainable practice and to, and really to step into leadership. And, you know, the companies that we're invested in, we're hoping that, you know, that, well, we're not just hoping, you know, we're, lo- we're looking for the leaders uh, and then, you know, trying to press them further on these issues. But there's lots of companies um, that have been laggards on a host of issues, whether it's, you know, even adopting anti-discrimination policies at their companies, which is like, you know, the least you can do. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> I mean, I, it's just, it, isn't it? I mean, you must every day just be shaking your head constantly about how unbelievably ignorant people are because it's like if if a big company doesn't have some sort of a research department that's looking into these issues and it's not like it's a secret anymore, you know, it's not like yeah. it's it's not even cutting edge in a way anymore. It's like it's everybody knows about this and that the research points to the fact that women, you know, and I read several articles about you in preparation for, for the show and talking about how, you know, women are such drivers in the economy and yet you don't want to pay them equal pay. I mean, it makes no sense. It just absolutely makes no sense. Yeah. I mean, I think there's blind spots, you know, it's not, uh, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily ignorance. Um, I think there's, you know, I certainly th- think there's um, inadequate education in our society and that we don't value that like we should or even early childhood education, uh, but that's a separate subject. Um, but I think there's blind spots. Uh, and, you know, if you, 
if, you know, the corporate culture that you grew up in uh, did it this way, and then somebody comes along and says, hey, there's a better way to do this, and you've been doing it wrong all along, well, naturally, you're going to get defensive and say, no, this is, you know, you're doing it the wrong way. Uh, and again, that's the the kind of a, like a win-lose mentality instead of a win-win mentality. Um I always, I always laugh thinking back to when companies started to put out sustainability reports, you know, where, you know, it's basically being transparent and accountable to uh, investors and employees about what's happening internal to the company uh, in terms of sustainability performance, right? And, you know, at, at one point that was emerging and there were very few companies that were doing it. And every time, you know, a new company started doing it, uh, you know, there was this, uh, backlash almost from um, the purists saying, well, that's just greenwashing and, um, you know, they're not really being, uh, you know, it's not authentic. And, you know, and I think, I think that's probably right. Uh, when a company comes out with their first sustainability report, it's probably the marketing department that said, hey, you know, we need to get on board and put out a sustainability report because our peers are starting to do it and we don't want to look like a laggard. Um, but my my husband and I always used to joke about this. It was, it's it's like the company that puts out a sustainability report is the guy that goes to a yoga class, um, and you know the yoga class is filled with women, and you know maybe he's going there to 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 you know meet somebody who you know who knows, and right. he, he starts you know but then he starts doing yoga. Um, and really, you know, gets into it and, you know, he starts being, you know, feeling calmer and, you know, Getting integrated into his himself. life. Yes. And <laughs> there's all these benefits that come from it when maybe the original intention was to like, you know, get a date. And so, you know, we, you get these companies dipping their toe in the water and saying, okay, we're going to put out a sustainability report. And then the next thing you know, they're starting to engage with investors and, uh, you know, they're, they're working with all of the different organizations, uh, you know, to make uh, the, that help make the sustainability report better. And they're thinking more strategically about how these factors connect to their core business. And there's a transformation that happens. Um, so, you know, I never, I never fault the company that's just getting started or maybe has, you know, 30 pages of glossy pictures and is greenwashing because I know that, you know, as they move down the path, uh, they'll start to take it much more seriously and they'll see the value in it. It feels good. You know, you mentioned that earlier, Natasha, you know, not to discount the doing the right thing because it feels so good. And I think that's one of the things that people are becoming aware of is when you are functioning from a paradigm of greed and and self-centeredness and disregard for the whole, it does not feel good. You, you cannot look around the world and not feel the pain of all the people that you're hurting and the environment that you're hurting because we are one. You know, it goes back to that principle again. And you, you, you talk about it in different words, but it's the same concept. You know, we do feel each other's pain and it just feels better once you get started. And I, I love what you're saying about that, that once you get started, it's just self-perpetuating. And it's uh, what I found interesting, too, is that that happens on a, a like a country level as well. As company, as countries get more wealth, then they get more interested in um, 
caring for uh, things. At least that's what I've seen. Um, you know, China is a good example. There, uh, from what I understand, and uh, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert on these matters. Their their carbon emissions, you know, has peaked and is now on its way down. Right. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's cool. It's cool that that you're looking at them that way. You know, that's really important. I think for. Uh, the interrevolutionary perspective to not, uh, you know, that just keeps people entrenched when you look at them and just go, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. So that brings me to a question about that the process itself. You know, sometimes you negotiate with companies after presenting your proposal, whatever the proposal might be right now. I know it's you're focusing on the financial sector, right? So, and from what I understand, you know, you present your proposal the first year, they're like, you know, 8% of the people say yes. And you know, the board and the rest are like, no, or (laughs) the shareholders or however that process works. Then, you know, you come back the next year and you might actually, they said yes, or the, that, so it starts the process, but I'm curious about that process. Like after presenting your proposal, what does that look like when you negotiate with a company? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I think the proposal itself is a is you know something really important that I would just you know highlight for a moment because you know the fact that investors have a voice uh, that they can leverage and use at a company um, and you know file a, pro- a proposal you know suggesting uh, that the company you know manage uh, risks or opportunities that that may not be uh, you know being attended to at the moment. Uh, that the investor has that voice, I think, is really important, and it really it represents the democratization of share ownership. And so, you know, an investor, and you know, the threshold isn't that high, but you know, it's reasonable uh, that has a certain amount of shares can go to a company, file a proposal. It then gets put on the uh, the ballot at the company's annual meeting, and often. You know, the companies, you know, the management and the board will look at the proposal, you know, before the proxy statement is, goes out and before the annual meeting and they'll say, oh, you know, this makes this might make us look bad. You know, why aren't we managing the gender pay gap? Why why aren't we you know, reporting out on climate change and how we're you know, planning to transition our business and then, you know, come back to us and say, you know, can we talk about this? Can we have a dialogue? And, you know, that's the number one goal with a shareholder proposal is to have a productive dialogue with a company because at its essence, you want the company to act and change. And so, you know, I'll give you, you know, and so, so you might, you know, negotiate then with the company, you know, in the case of uh, ExxonMobil in 2014, when we got them to write their first um, report on climate change and carbon asset risk, it was headed to the ballot and they had fought us at the SEC and then they lost and they came back to us and they said, okay, uh, you know, we're willing to write this report. So we said, okay, you write the report, we'll withdraw the proposal. It won't go to a vote of shareholders. Um, and you know, in that case, the company is, um, you know, being accountable and transparent And, you know, perhaps they don't look as bad at the annual meeting because all other shareholders have to weigh in and vote on the issue. Now, of course, in the case of Exxon, uh, they produced what has been uh, uh, characterized as a very misleading report. Uh, You know, they they wrote a 30-page report on managing the risks 
Uh, and that report is now under investigation by the attorney generals of New York, Massachusetts, and California, uh, because wow. you know they, they said things in there like it was going to cost consumers 40% of their income by 2090 to, um, to pay for energy if we transitioned to a low carbon economy. So, you know, that was seen as a bit of, you know, perhaps fear mongering, um, perhaps, perhaps <laughs> bad math, we can leave that to the lawyers. But, um, you know, there, there's an example of a company that acted, it didn't go to a vote. Uh, the, the example, um, I, I believe that you were referring to earlier, uh, is from when we started the gender pay equity work. Uh, and that was in 2014 going into 15. And we filed with eBay. Um, and really, you know, it was the first time a proposal like this had been filed at a company. We chose the tech sector uh, and eBay because we knew there were such huge disparities in terms of um, the, you know, the numbers of, of women versus men, uh, that they really had a, you know, women problem that there, that there weren't many, um, and that we saw that there was, uh, you know, business, a business case for them, for them to address this issue. So, you know, we went to eBay, um, we actually, you know, in this case, we, we were quite surprised. They, uh, they didn't want to talk about it. The board opposed it. Uh, and we had engaged with them successfully before that. Uh, so it, it, it was unusual, I thought. Um, and so, you know, we, the proposal went to a vote the first year, it got, you know, an 8% vote. Now, a week, and a week before that, Salesforce, who we weren't even engaging, uh, came out and said, we're going to close the gender pay gap. And, you know, I like to think of that as a collateral benefit um, yes. because there had been all this news about eBay opposing the shareholder proposal. Uh, you know, and hopefully at Salesforce, there was an aha moment. Hey, this is an issue. We need to take care of it. Um, but regardless, you know, fast forward a year and we took that proposal at eBay. We, um, we rolled it out uh, to nine big tech firms, including eBay. And, you know, one by one, um, we went through that process of filing the proposal and having a productive dialogue. So by the end of, you know, the spring of 2016, we'd gotten Intel and Apple and Expedia and Amazon uh, and Adobe um, and Microsoft to to act, and then we had Google and Facebook were the were the the two that that didn't, which were the two laggards. Uh, and eBay went to a vote again. Now, um, at, along with Facebook and Google, but the second year, because investors viewed the issue as a competitive issue in terms of attracting and retaining top talent, uh, you know, versus peers who are all now disclosing the gender pay gap and committing to close it. The vote at eBay was 51%. So it increased sixfold. And that very day, the CEO committed to uh, look at the problem and fix any problems that they found. Uh, and they've since reported out. So, you know, that's, that's, we were happy to see that uh, with eBay and in Silicon Valley. Uh, and that's what, you know, we hope to see with uh, the big banks on Wall Street. I hope so too. You know, one thing that uh, I read in that one of the articles was about Corning and how they have been doing this kind of analysis for 
decades, it sounded like. And that really surprised me. And I wonder if you have some insight about why they might be kind of early adapters of of such research when they seem like they seem like a stodgy old company. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting when we when we started this work, there was only one company in the US that had been public about the gender pay gap. And uh, ironically, that was The Gap, the clothing retailer. Uh, And it was started by a a man and woman team, husband and wife team. Uh, And so, you know, they came together in partnership and created the company. And so it had been an important part uh, of of their story. Uh, And, you know, we hear of other companies, you know, like Corning and, you know, companies that say, well, we've been looking at this for a long time. Uh, the really important piece is not just looking at it. It's that that's looking at it is important in and of itself, but you need to look at it, do the analysis and then be transparent about it and say, you're doing it, say what it is and then commit, be accountable, commit to close it uh, and keep it closed. And if you if you have you know just a company saying hey we don't have a gender pay gap you know Google and Facebook both say that, but they won't give a number. They won't mm-hmm. even say one hundred percent because you know I've said to them if it's a hundred percent, say a hundred percent. But they won't say a hundred percent. They'll say we just don't have it. You know, and so if you don't have that disclosure, there's no way for investors and employees or, you know, possible talent to know whether the company is being honest uh, and authentic on the issue. Uh, And, you know, luckily in the U.S. with, you know, the work that we've done uh, and momentum, you know, behind it and, and, um, you know, so many kind of, you know, I think there's been a big public outcry now for, you know, equal pay for equal work. you know, that's important and companies are moving on their own and they're stepping into positions of leadership. Uh, You know, unfortunately, the government um, has not, you know, moved forward proactively. Uh, You know, there were some Obama era, um, you know, moves toward making, uh, you know, gender pay uh, disclosures mandatory uh, to, you know, to the government, not publicly to to investors. but that just got, uh, you know, kicked to the curb by the Trump administration, uh, you know, yesterday, I believe. Yeah, uh, I read the and, same thing. <laughs> yeah, and you know, we've had a uh, Paycheck Fairness Act in front of Congress, I think, for like seven years now, uh, and you know, unfortunately, it gets voted down, you know, straight down party lines, and it hasn't moved forward. Uh, but there are there's there's movement in the states. You know, I'm in um, in Boston. Uh, the I testified in favor of an equal pay law here in Massachusetts, which passed this spring. Uh, there's a new equal pay law in New York. There's one in California. I think New Jersey uh, has moved forward with that. So states are starting to act. And then, if you look across the pond, the UK companies are starting to mandate these kinds of disclosures. Uh, And so all companies, I think with over 500 employees, something like that, by uh, the spring of 2018 will have to uh, disclose their gender pay gaps. And, you know, that's bleeding over uh, because, you know, 
we're working with the big banks and they have, you know, they have operations in the UK. So they're going to have to be reporting out for their UK operations. Why not do the whole thing? You know, there's, I think this issue, there's an inevitability around it. uh, And the expectation has been set that companies are going to be transparent and accountable. You know, two things that kind of shocked me in that article too were that it said that that equal pay has been law since 1963 and how the making laws is not going to be the way that it happens. So I'm kind of confused about that. And then I was kind of shocked also that the pay inequity during the Obama administration during, you know, for its own staff was, you know, women got paid 11% less for the same job. So Mm. can you speak about that a little bit about even though all these wonderful things are happening about transparency and mandating, I guess, you know, maybe that's the key is mandating transparency will make these laws actually mean something. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to blind spots like we spoke about before. You know, I honestly don't think for the majority of companies or organizations that they set out and say, okay, we want to pay women less um, but that, you know, and, and improve our profit margins that way, but that it, you know, it happens through unconscious bias. It happens because women were paid less at their last job and, and, you know, their new employer asked them how much they were paid and they only stepped them up so much. And, um, you know, there's all of these sort of negative system systems loops that, that come into play. Um, so I think, you know, I think that that's, I think that that's definitely part of it. Um, but if you're not, if you're not looking at it, you know, if you're not actually doing the analysis and, and companies aren't, you know, when we start talking to them, they say, oh, we haven't, we haven't done this analysis or we're just starting to do this analysis. If you don't look at it, you don't know it's there. And that's why transparency is so important. And whether, you know, it's coming from the companies that are inspired, you know, to step into leadership that see it as a competitive issue, or it's coming from a government mandate, uh, you know, it's moving us in, in the same direction. And those are, you know, mutually supportive efforts. Um, and it takes all those different leverage points, you know, it's never going to be just investors pressing for this, or just, you know, government or, um, you know, activists or public dialogue, it's got to be all of these things that come together at once. And I think we're really starting to see that on this issue. How do you see that tied to an overall, what we're, what we're calling an inner revolution? That's what we're saying. It's a shift of consciousness, really, a shift of perspective. Um, it's an awareness. Uh, so uh, we see your work, at least I do, and that's why I invited you to be on this show, is that you're, you know, you get that. You're, you see that. And like you said, it's, a, it's an extraordinary extraordinarily complex to change human behavior. Um, yeah. I mean, it can be, our, our founder says uh, that change is snow, slow, nonlinear, and sudden. It's like, <laughs> you know, yes. it's, it just happens when it does, you know, you, it, but all these things, like you say, contribute to it, right? Yeah. So, and I, and I think you you can feel like, you know, uh, last spring, for instance, spring of 2016, I thought, Oh my gosh! Look at this huge leap in progress, uh, and then and then you have these bumps in the road where you know you take a step back, like today with the EEOC, um, 
you know, mandate getting ditched. Um, right. So, you know, it, it, it's not linear. Uh, but you, you do see all of these disparate actors, you know, across the globe coming together on this issue, um, you know, understanding it from an ethical standpoint, understanding it from an economic standpoint. And, you know, when, and it, you know, it's, it's the idea whose time has come. I was uh, I was watching. I think I was watching the Super Bowl maybe last last fall, and uh, there was a Budweiser commercial, or maybe the Budweiser. I think there was an Audi commercial at the Super Bowl, and then in this in the summer before, there was a Budweiser commercial uh, on equal pay that was you know slightly infuriating. Uh, it was a couple you know comedians, and you know they were saying that they charge men and women the same amount for beer. Uh, and, you know, even though it was slightly infuriating and kind of dismissed the issue, I thought, you know what, this issue is becoming mainstream when it's in a Budweiser commercial, it's become a mainstream issue and there's a shift happening. And, you know, when change happens, it's often that it happens in, in a million different places kind of all at once. And everybody is like, oh, I have a new idea, or this is the idea now, um, but there's also, you know, there's intention around it. Uh, and, you know, I'm on the, the board of this wonderful uh, organization. It's a nonprofit called um, the Intentional Endowments Network. And it's, it's working with, you know, some of the, the top uh, universities and colleges across the country to think about, you know, investing their endowments uh, in an intentional way. Uh, and I think, you know, originally the move on college campuses came from to think about, hey, how is our college investing this money, you know, that they're paying for uh, operations with, you know, are they investing it in alignment with what they're teaching at the schools? And if they're not, you know, that's an issue. And there was a big push for divestment. You know, are they divesting from fossil fuels? And, you know, we we chose with um, the Intentional Endowments Network not to, you know, come out uh, kind of guns a-blazing saying you need to divest uh, because we knew that would put up walls. But just to say you need to, you need to be thinking about this with intention because if you do that, that's going to lead to alignment with what you're doing in all of your other operations, what you're teaching, uh, you know, your students. And I was reflecting on this recently because I had a flashback to my, uh, my husband and I have been together since college. And so I was at his graduation uh, at Hampshire College in Western Mass. And Hampshire is a very progressive uh, school and, um, you know, they're always, always ahead of the curve. And I remember at his graduation, there was a protest about the endowment. And it was because they were, I think they were invested in, you know, private prisons and, um, you know, it was, there was a big, uh, and, and weapons as well. And there was a big, you know, uh, protest during the, during the ceremony. Um, and I thought, you know, wow, you know, th- looking back. Um, they were so ahead of the, the curve on this issue. Um, but it takes time and, uh, you know, you can't push the river, but every, every single person has a role to play in moving um, any change forward. And I think, I think that would be kind of the core of, you know, what I hope people would take away from this conversation is that change doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's never one actor or, you know, one geography that changes the whole. It's 
each person's individual actions on, you know, any given day or any given issue. And we all have, you know, our certain leverage point to pull. And, you know, even the name of our firm, Arjuna Capital, was inspired by uh, Arjuna, who's this, you know, uh, Hindu uh, kind of mythic hero, uh, who's a skilled archer and, you know, kind of um, fierce, fierce guy, and he's going into battle. uh, And, you know, he has all these doubts, because it's this, you know, sort of morally complex situation. And he just, you know, he doesn't know what the right path is and you know Krishna comes down and opens his mouth and in a bat of a fly's wing Arjuna is enlightened and he sees the entire you know the entire universe in Krishna's mouth and he understands that his path is to take action and you know I just I love that because we all have to take action whatever that action is whether you know it's the inner revolution or the outer revolution or how those two meet um, you know action is important. That's amazing. I love, I'm so glad to hear how you got that name. I had no idea, and that that is very touching. You know, you mentioned the Super Bowl, which, you know, this may be going off on a tangent, but with all of the uh, research about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, Mm. um, you know, I'd like to hear your thoughts about, because people invest a ton of money into football, and even though it certainly doesn't feel like it's for the highest good of all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, that's right. I think it's a, it's a really tragic issue, and we've seen so much um, fallout from that issue. Um, and, you know, and I, unfortunately, I think, you know, the players who, you know, again, it's, it's you know, there's a lot of money to be made, um, and that's put... I think at the forefront rather than people's safety. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate situation that I hope that there's, you know, some reevaluation and intention, uh, you know, when thinking about it. Uh, I, I guess I would, I guess I, I'm not a huge sports person. Um, although I'm really good at lawn sports, if you ask my friends. <laughs> But, um, (laughs) you know, croquet, bocce ball, those sorts of things. But one of the things that I really, um, you know, loved watching play out uh, over the the course of the last year was the U.S. women's soccer team, who had been so much more successful. And I think the the hockey team as well. Uh, so much more successful than the male teams and they were being paid so much less and their contracts were terrible, Uh, you know, and they went forward and, and, you know, publicly called it out and, you know, looked for renegotiation of salary and they were able to get it. Uh, And, you know, I think there's a lot of bravery behind that. I think um, it really made, you know, made a huge, a huge statement in the sports world about, you know, what we value, you know, why do we value men's sports more than we value women's sports? And, um, you know, those are very complex issues, uh, you know, to, to dig into. I mean, I, I joked about, um, you know, lawn sports or whatever, but, you know, even, you know, when we, when we think about gender and, and equity, you know, whenever I play, um, you know, just silly lawn sports, like at our little beach club, you know, whether it's cornhole or 
<laughs> which is like throwing a bean bag onto a board and getting it through a hole or, or bocce ball. Um, you know, there's not a lot of women that play because, you know, frankly, I don't think they're invited. You know, it's seen as sort of this male male bonding experience and the guys are drinking beer. And, you know, when I go and play, because I think it's so much fun, uh, they're always amazed that like, you know, I can throw a beanbag a short distance and get it in the hole and, you know, often win. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, geez, what's wrong with us? Because there's, you know, this, there, you know, men have no strategic uh, advantage in a sport like that. You know, I think you bring up such a good point, though, which I think is a, a good place for us to, to summarize and, and uh, resolve this conversation is it does require us to have an inner revolution in the way that we see things, whether we're talking about bocce ball or we're talking about, you know, global warming and ExxonMobil and what to do with the oil reserves. You know, we have to take a look at those very basic you know, human, spiritual, emotional, social issues and our beliefs and where they came from. You know, it, yes. it, we have to look at our own willingness to be greedy at the expense of others. We have to look at our own disparity between what we expect from a male and what we expect of a female, you know, all the way down to cornholing. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing, but it, it was such a beautiful example, Natasha, because that's, that's where it lies, is we all have to be willing to look at what are we doing in our own daily lives, because not everybody is blessed enough to be as brilliant as you are and successful that you can have impact on that, that kind of large scale. But we can make a decision not to watch football, because we don't believe that that uh, what they're doing is right or or whatever that decision may be or to go ahead and play cornhole even though you're not invited. Right. Or make well, amends to your kids when you, you know, go over the line and intervening with them, you know, yeah. as I yeah. have to daily, not daily, but, you know, it's so. Sometimes. sometimes so yeah. let me let me read the e-card for our next show. And I think you're going to find it fascinating also, Natasha. Climate change, healthcare, addiction, stress. What's the link? What's the answer? An interview with Granny Rocks, a.k.a. Beth Green. While we've been living in a business-as-usual world, the world has not been business-as-usual. Historic floods and fires, frightening levels of addiction and death, high levels of polarization and anxiety, and more. What are we doing about it? Beth Green, a.k.a. Granny Rock, says that generally speaking, we're not addressing the source of our problems. Democrats often offer tepid, incremental responses that don't match the needs. Republicans are trying to go backward on environmental protection, drugs, inclusivity, and the social safety net. Interest groups express outrage but little unity for anything. Polarization, racism, scapegoating, and hate are on the rise, and we're not addressing the essential problem. Most of us don't feel safe in our world, and there are economic, social, spiritual, and emotional roots for that feeling of unsafety. We must and can do better, says Granny Rocks. Tune in. Hear about her thoughts about the roots of our problems and direction for their solution. Cool. 
I can't wait for that show. And I, I think it's a wonderful follow-up from this show, you know, and it's talking, again, uh, from a different perspective about some of the same issues. So do you have any final things that you would like to leave our audience with, Natasha? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what it comes down to and sort of to, to wrap this conversation is, you know, change comes from consciousness. Uh, you know, when we're in a state of unconsciousness, we continue doing the same thing over and over and we get into these maladaptive patterns. Uh, and even, you know, thinking about the, the next show, you know, so much about, you know, aligning what, you know, what I said before, what one thinks, what they say, what they do, um, you know, that creates happiness. And if you can align what you're doing with your life, you know, obviously in our case, align your investments with, you know, how you think about the world and the world you want to live in um, and, and, you know, leverage your position, whatever it is in the world, um, you know, change, change will happen. Uh, but it just, it just takes that, that level of consciousness. So, um, and the willingness very to grateful. act. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's, that's right. In, in whatever way makes sense for you. Yeah. Um, you know, I, we, I, we were joking about uh, lawn sports, you know, uh, I always have to make the choice when I'm, when I'm playing, you know, with guys that might be a little, you know, there might be a little unconscious sexism. Am I going to call it out or am I just going to have fun playing the game? And, you know, I have to decide how to do that and when the right time is and when people are actually going to listen and not be defensive. And, and that's the key. How can, you know, how can we all move forward in a way that, um, you know, people aren't defensive, you know, they're, they're, they're not armed, they're, uh, they're open to the suggestion that, you know, change can be positive. And I think that, that the oneness idea, if we can communicate that, that, you know, actually, we really are all on the same page. We all want the same thing. We all want a world in which people feel safe, in which our needs are met, in which we have happy, productive workers, and the environment is saved. You know, we all want the same thing, basically. <clears throat> Excuse me, we just have to be reminded of it. And sometimes, I think you're right, you know, some, it depends on the opening. Yeah. What a delight to talk with you. This has been a great conversation, and thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Natasha, and all the best to you and your wonderful work. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be inspired. Join us.